Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Backstage Podcast. My guest this week is Michael Forian. He is back. This time, we talk about our new normalcy under the coronavirus and how we're coping with this new reality. Also, we talk about how this pandemic has affected different sectors. Obviously, we do have to throw in some politics as well. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Dude, thanks for coming on. I uh, I appreciate. It. I know it was last minute, um, and uh, you know these things happen. You know, I had a bunch of people lined up uh, to do this podcast, but uh, COVID nineteen had other plans, man. And uh, it's just life, <laughs> exactly. So people's reality is very different now. You know, they're home, they're they're with the kids. It's difficult to connect. So uh, uh, so thanks for coming on, man. I, I do appreciate it. You're breaking all sorts of record here on the backstage. Third- Jamais deux sans trois. Three, third time's a charm. This is the third time, man. Yeah. <laughs> how are you? How, how, how are you handling the situation? How are you uh, coping with everything? I'm going to say the same thing that I've told everybody who's asking that question because it's a question that everybody's getting. You know, how are you feeling? Yeah. I think it's like a, it's a natural response to want to ask um, somebody you care for, those you love around you, your friends, um, you know, how are you feeling? Yeah. You're, how are you coping? It's, it's, you know, we cope when we ask that question. It's a coping mechanism. Yeah. Um, I'm so sick of this shit. <laughs> I'm, I'm so done with, with, with uh, self-quarantine and, and self-isolation. I know it's, it's what's required. I'm, I'm not going to break that. I'm going to follow, uh, follow the, the rules that have been set into play because I know it's, good, it's for the good of, of, of um, you know, the, the, the global population and, and for it's what we need to do. Um, and it's a really easy thing to do. Staying at home is not a really yeah. difficult thing yeah. until, you know, you get to that second, third, fourth, fifth, you know, when you start, when you start, you know, forgetting what day it is and, you know, what, or what week it is. Yeah. Um, that's, that's been the scary part for me. But and also the fact that you're, you're, you're such a, you know, you're such a public figure, you know, you're out there, you're all, you're, you're used to networking, going to yeah. places, meeting people and then suddenly everything is halted. Right. I mean, it's it's just a strange and just to go back to what you're saying that we have this natural reflex to, you know, when we talk to people to ask them, how are you? How's your family? How are you doing? And then when we're stop, when, when we're done the conversation, stay safe. You know, these are things that we could have very easily done before. It's just that now we're so sensitized to everything happening that we seem like we care. Not that we didn't care before. It's just that now we're more vocal about it. You know, as much as like, I'm, I'm sick and tired of this, this, this shit. I, do look at the upside. And I do say to myself, you know, it was Easter a couple of weeks ago. I think it was last week for, for you. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, you know, like we, I think I had a zoom call with, uh, an extended family, a zoom call with, I think we were at at 1.20 or 25, maybe somewhere in the middle there. Um, all in different parts of the world from, um, from France to Calgary to um, I think we had people coming in from, from British Columbia, uh, you know, different parts of Europe all calling in. And uh, that's what I, I I loved. I mean, that was probably like a a big boost in terms of, you know, me being able to, to get through that week and uh, sort of supercharge me into going, you know, staying away from, you know, depression mode because I'm not able to see my friends. I want to be able to go, go to uh, do a Sanke set with my colleagues. Um, you know, that's we've definitely, been, we've, yeah, we've definitely taken advantage of the fact that, uh, 
you know, like in your case, you know, there's people that you don't get to talk to or see on a, on a regular basis. And now because of what's happening, uh, and I think it's a good thing, right? I mean, you're staying in touch. You're like, okay, let's organize this Zoom thing. Uh, the other day I was at my, uh, I was at my in-laws and it was my father-in-law's birthday and they called him from Colombia, right? So there were like five or six people. And That's awesome. It, it, but it's fun, you know what I mean? It's just the things that are, were always there, but you never did it. You know, you know, you you never had that reflex of saying, "Look, let's do a group FaceTime or right. uh, a group Zoom," and now you're doing it because, you know, you care. I mean, you you cared before, but now it's just that. Let me just make sure that everyone I know and everyone I love is okay, right? They're doing fine. They have yeah, and I, and I hope that carries on. Like, um, you know, I think we're going to be in this position at least to some degree for the foreseeable future. But I, I do hope that even after, uh, you know, be it this year, be it in 2021, that we're we're you know, through and done with this, uh, that we're, we're able to continue that collaboration. Um, you know, the other upside to this whole thing is that I've been drinking a lot more during the middle of the day. Um, not, not even the middle of the day, like early, the early hours. Of the day. <laughs> Screw the time. I mean, don't tell anybody. Yeah. 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 No, nobody's going to find out now. Yeah. Nobody's, no. nobody's going to hear about I'm it. Just, just, this, is, this is not tea or coffee or anything. This is, this is that's the trick. Now you put it in a mug. You've crossed that next level. Nobody's the wiser. You think I'm going to pull out my flask? That's going to give it away easily. <laughs> uh, tell me about work. Um, you guys uh, stopped. How is that? Uh, how's that going? Stopped. Um, there is. So we're in the the uh, the industry of of generating conferences and putting together conferences for a year. One in Montreal, Toronto, Paris, and Miami, and we've had to postpone two. Um, we are probably going to have to postpone uh, the other two. And we're in a position where we are probably the industry that is most affected by this and where, um, you know, we're dealing with major stakeholders and, you know, industries across the world where we're, we, um, you know, we had hope, we had hope that, um, for our, um, you know, our latest conference, the, which was supposed to be our latest conference, the, the Miami conference in April, um, early April, we had hope, um, in, in the beginning of March and mid March that we were still gonna be able to pull through. Um, more in the beginning of March and it, uh, it quickly dissipated in, in about, uh, it was like a 48 hour yeah. uh, cycle when things started, you know, becoming really serious and, and, um, you know, governors and, uh, started putting out decrees, um, not necessarily in Florida, but outside or in or in around Florida and across the U S and, um, you know, press conferences of the such of COVID-19 became, uh, you know, a very, a real and daily, um, you know, f- f- you know, happening. Um, that this, it was not going to happen and that we would have to push back to uh, to September for our Miami conference. Same, for our Montreal conference, which was supposed to be taking taking place in June, mm-hmm. uh, push back to December. Um, you know, the International Economic Forum uh, understands that, you know, you know, we... Uh, we weren't able going to we weren't able to pull, pull through on this whole thing and and you know this is the same situation uh, that everybody else is in so yeah. i mean it's it's and a fact also, of life you're also in the industry that when things kick back you know when everything comes back i don't want to say normal but because i don't think we're going to see normal anytime soon but you know whenever you know when this quarantine thing is lifted you're also in that industry that is going to pick up much slower than everything else you know uh, we were talking about this before uh, recording right people's you know trust people's paranoia paranoia has been affected right i mean even if tomorrow every everything is suddenly okay and we're like okay let's go back to normal if you asked me personally i would think twice about going to a concert or to an event or to a theater or to anything that has to do with you know hundreds if not thousands of people around me you know 
constantly questioning, you know, thinking, uh, you know, coughing now has become the worst thing. <laughs> you hear someone coughing, you're like, oh, sh- you know, what's going on? You know, oh, I get I listen, uh, I'm drinking a slurp of coffee and maybe drinking my co- coffee too much or too heavily. And I, I was going for a walk the other day and, and there was a near, near where I live, there was a, a bit of a shopping area there. So there were people lined up and whatnot. And I was taking a sip of coffee. I, I coughed because there was some in the back of my throat and I got the dirtiest stares that I've ever gotten in my life. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was, I was ostracized for, for coughing on a bit of coffee. Yeah. I said this on the last podcast. Uh, I read this tweet when, uh, when this whole situation first started, like end of February, I think, or beginning of March. I was going through Twitter and I can't remember who it was. I wish I knew so I can credit him, but the, he was writing, you know, the coughing in public has replaced the N word. <laughs> you know? Pretty much. Pretty much. You cough in public. It's over. You're done, man. It's like, uh, yeah, you're straight to crucifixion. You're done. Uh, but, uh, but, you, but you know, the other thing too, just, just on, on, um, you know, the, 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 the place that uh, conferences and especially like, you know, the IEFA with our conference of Montreal or our, you know, our, our Toronto global forum, um, you know, what's, I think is the upside is that once we are through with this and once we can actually put on a production and we're going to be in a position where we can highlight uh, the government of Canada's efforts. Um, you know, I want to say highlight all of the good, but I mean, I think maybe also look at what wasn't so good. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the, the fair and honest way of being able to, to evaluate, you know, how the, the government did. And, and, I, and I think that's one thing that I, I look forward to is being able to say, hey, you know what, Canada's open for business. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to restart. Uh, we're, we're a huge power in the G7. We're a huge power in the G20. And, and we're open for business. And, and Canada's back. And I think that's the way to approach this. But time will tell when we will be able to do that because obviously right now we can't. Yeah. Look, I think I agree with you in the sense that we need to look positively into the future. Definitely we're going to come out stronger uh, from this. Unfortunately, lives will have been lost, right? Uh, and, and that is the most unfortunate thing. This is the saddest thing of it all. But, you know, going forward, I mean... I think as a country and as provinces and as societies, I think we're going to be much better prepared for whatever comes next. You know, if hopefully it doesn't, but let's say it does, you know, and it's sad because it does take a catastrophe like this to make you realize that you are so not well prepared. You know, I remember the ice storm uh, in 98. Um, Nobody saw this coming businesses were lost. I mean, it, it wasn't as bad as this is right now, but it, it it woke up a lot of people, right? And that put in place this whole mechanism on how to deal with natural disasters, right? Um, same thing after the, the, the train uh, explosion in Lac Mégantic here in Quebec. Yeah. Nobody, nobody even thought, you know, a train like that going through a residential area could cause huge damage. Like it hadn't, hadn't it crossed anyone's mind before, but after that, you know, tragedy happened, they woke up and they implemented all these policies about, you know, all these transport laws and stuff, um, you know, to better prepare, uh, for the future and hopefully to avoid something like this from happening again. So, so- uh, I'm curious to see what's going to happen next, you know, like uh, from a medical perspective also. Right. Right. And I, and I think, you know, the, the person who has said this the best in terms of like the type of crisis that we're dealing with, like, a, you know, a little liner that I liked from him was, was John Baird, who's, who's my mentor and, and, and a good friend of mine. Uh, you know, he said to me, this is nine 11 in, in slow motion. Mm-hmm. Nobody has ever dealt with this before, yeah. but you know, when you go from 
you know, a government that went from at the beginning of the month to a $20 billion, a $20 billion deficit to a $150 billion deficit plus, 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 because, you know, we just had uh, a $9 billion program that was announced today for, uh, to help students, um, you know, from, from uh, the government of Canada in the wake of, of, of COVID-19. I mean, this is really, um, you know, you're, you're going to see multi, you're seeing multifaceted faceted approaches to dealing with, with the challenge of, of the economy, the labor force, quarantine, uh, you know, it, it's all coming together, and and you know this is it's unprecedented. We've we haven't seen anything since um, since World War II yeah. uh, of this scale. Um, you know, the the only difference is that there was no fighting in this side of the Atlantic. Yeah, exactly. No, the economical situation is honestly scaring me. I mean, we've had this conversation so many times before about how worrying all these deficit uh, deficits are. Um, you know, no security blanket for any situation like this right like the unexpected occurs what do you do right and you're comparing that with quebec that was going into this with a five billion dollar surplus they have all the leeway in the world to make any decision they want of course it's going to impact the economy but at least the government on the economic side perspective much more prepared right and you look right. at it from the federal side and like you said i mean we're we're, we're over 200 billion in surplus in in deficit uh it, it is it's worrying about you know the future like okay the next couple five six seven months whenever we everything is rebooted again i mean me and you and everyone else is going to have to pay for all these things right it's exactly like- and, and i think there was a really good column that came out from from jack mintz um i think it was in the financial post and he was talking about you know, countries with with highly leveraged households, uh, you know, corporations, public sectors are going to face, you know, immense instability, um, you know, as, as credit spreads, you know, where we are are giving out as much governments are, are giving out as much money as they can loaning as much money as they can right right now. But, you know, it, it devalues the currencies. It's, you know, people are, are becoming indebted to to such a large, large extent. We don't know when the economy is we have an idea when it's going to start up again. But you know, there, there's always the the possibility of there being a second wave of of COVID nineteen, and and this is you know at the forefront of of all you know major major governments right now uh, in the world that are looking at this. You know, we, you know, Canada has not had a history of of, of runaway deficits or debt. You know, since the past um, economic crisis, um, but at the same time, we shouldn't be bragging about our public finances. And this is one thing with, with Justin Trudeau. You know, you have to look at you know, the part of our our, our debt is about to mature. And is going to probably have to be be replaced with with new financing. Um, you know, you're you're looking um, at the fifth highest amounts um, of new financing. Uh, you know, among among you know the the, the G seven. Um, the only countries that beat us in, in that category are Japan, United States, Italy, and Spain. So, I mean, it's 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 not good. It's not a pretty picture. Yeah. Um, because it, now that you mentioned the second wave, I, I just remembered, I think a couple of days ago, England, uh, uh, came out and announced that nothing is starting until the end of the year. <laughs> you know, yeah. they disappointed everyone. Everyone thought like it's only a couple more months and they're like, listen, until the end of 2020, this is what it's going to be like. Right. Um, so, uh, they're preparing obviously for a second wave coming in, in the fall, you know? Uh, and I think that we have a benefit to looking at what other big economies are doing uh, just to have an idea of what may potentially happen here as well. Right. Um, And it's very conflicting because we have just our neighbors in the South that are acting completely 
uh, in the opposite direction, right? Where they just want to just start everything as quickly as possible. Uh, and I, I don't think that's the right move either. So we're kind of stuck in between these two, uh, in these two worlds. Where we're stuck in between these two worlds, and also, you know, the one the one difference that's having happening right now to the south of us is the fact that there's an election this year. Yeah. And I mean, you you have to think of this. Um, you know, Trump is is no stranger to you know political meddling. I'm not talking necessarily about foreign interference, but he does that too. But when it comes to political meddling, that you know uh, intertwines with conflicts of interest and and questions of morality and ethics. Uh, you know, you know, a, a great uh, reporting job by the New York Times uh, this morning on how. Uh, Trump uh, appointed uh, Stephen Moore uh, to his economic uh, council to restart America's economy after COVID-19, somebody who has been caught uh, orchestrating part of the protests that are happening in Wisconsin, Michigan, Maine, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, all across the United States, um, Colorado, protesting these um, uh, confinement and and quarantine efforts that have been put in place by governors in some Republican, uh, a good portion of Republican uh, um, uh, run uh, states, uh, governments, and, and and this gentleman, uh, Mr. Moore, has uh, been playing both sides of the aisle. He's been playing the, uh, you know, I'm I'm this you know advisor to the president, but he's also at the same time playing up you know this political card yeah. of of being of being able to orchestrate um, the same people that were instrumental in Tea Party movement, the same people that uh, you know pushed Trump to to victory. Um, in 2016, because they felt that they were dis- disenfranchised, and which I'm not saying they weren't, but um, you know, when when political decisions start interfering with public health decisions, I think you know you have to start uh, really asking yourself: Is this the right course for a country? It's incredible. Like I understand the urgency uh, of starting up your economy, especially for a country like the U.S. You know, the, the hugest, one of the biggest industries in the world. I get it, but to what cost, man? You know what I mean? I mean, why neglect science <laughs> when, 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 when you have, what, over 40,000 deaths? I mean, it, it, it's insane. It's insane. Why put people's lives at risk, you know? Oh, because I think that there are a lot of people that have come to the conclusion that it's okay to kill off granny and, and, and grandma if it means uh, me being able to uh, maintain my job and if it means me being able to, uh, you know, buy a house. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of there, it's, it's selfishness. I think there's a, there's a, and people have put forward economic uh, have advocated economic, um, you know, efforts to restart the economy with there being the conclu- with there being conclusive evidence that uh, it will kill more people, and they're willing to accept that they're okay killing people off in that sense. At the same time, Michael, man, you you have to think of a country of this size, right, of this magnitude. Uh, you know, 300 million people, how many people are jobless right now? And they're just desperate for income. You know, they're like, listen, man, I don't care if I get sick. I don't care if it means I'm putting my life at risk. I need to feed my family. I need my business back on track. I need to pay my bills. I Like there's all these things that we need to do. Uh, and I just can't have it done right now. You know what I mean? I mean, you're lucky now because you know, we have these programs in place where you still have some income coming in, right? We got lucky in our industry. We were considered essential services. So luckily enough, we kept working. Um, a lot of people aren't in that situation. You understand? And they don't no. have the programs that we have here in place in Canada. Of course, we have a much smaller population that allows us to cover. And of course, I mean, 2000 bucks a month here in Canada, maybe, I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's some sort of health. But you know, for if many, you can get access to it, 
Yeah. Uh, if you but, qualify for it, I mean, that's, that's the real question too. And, uh, you know, it seems that every single week, you know, Justin Trudeau is having to come out and, you know, respond to the fact that, you know, Oh, our, our SIR program didn't cover this, um, this segment of the population. It didn't cover this segment of the population having to, you know, always have to, you know, have to, there, there are many other options that he had in terms of, of, of SERP. There, there was the ability for him to, um, you know, take everybody who filed their tax returns, um, their 2018 tax returns last year, um, and, and, you know, send out checks uh, through that method there. Mm-hmm. The reason why they didn't do it is because there's going to be a lot of people who first off didn't need SERP in the first place that were going to get it then. There's a lot of people that died uh, over that period of time who would have received, who would have been, you know, say, getting checks and whatnot. But, um, you know, that's, that's the real problem right now. But we're, we're left with a labor market where, you know, 7 million plus people are unemployed. That's where we are right now. Um, going forward, uh, how do you think, you know, what kind of effects is this going to have? I think people, um, have, the restaurant industry is, is, is cut in half effectively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, people stop going to restaurants long before governments ask people to stop. Um, you know, you looked at, you know, look at tourism, hospitality, airlines, um, it's going to take a lot longer to get back. Uh, there's going to have to be, um, a bailout for the airline industry, uh, without a doubt. And this is not the, the first time that, uh, you know, this has occurred, you know, we, the, the problem posed by a 90% reduction of flights is, is a huge problem for the airlines, but you know, the backstop from the federal government, um, to Air Canada that happened in the 1990s, that loan that was given to them, that uh, that backstop was paid back in full with interest. Yeah. Uh, so the government will have to step in, but it's not to say that it's going to be an economic disaster for taxpayers um, from that perspective, at least. You know, we're, we're going to have to, government is going to have to increase its role in terms of being able to ensure that industries don't die. Yeah. Um, you know, case in point, what's happening in Alberta right now, which... The, the announcement that came from Justin Trudeau earlier this week, um, you know, obviously not enough, but at least it's something at this point. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, our lives are, are definitely changed at this point. We're not going to be going back anytime soon. But when you think of all the people that are, are frontline, you know, when was the last time that you, you, know, you went to a supermarket? Um, and, and this is just like, you know, a personal thing for me. Like, I've never thanked the cashiers at supermarkets, yeah. the the, 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 these frontline customer service um, employees uh, are, are, are demigods. They're godsends for us because they're keeping us alive. Yeah. They're keeping the economy going. Yeah. And if it was not for them, um, we'd be gone. Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. Um, you know, how do you feel about this whole sense of you know, I don't want to say anti-globalization, but there's this whole sensitivity towards, you know, local markets. You know, Quebec created the Le, le Panier Bleu. There's all this, uh, you know, approach about helping the Canadian and Quebec businesses because, you know, there's this movement of solidarity. Mm-hmm. Do you think that will be able to sustain itself going forward or are we just going to go back to what it was people are going to think of their pockets their profits and eventually we're just going to go go straight back into the globalized society that we were and produce things abroad i'm already looking at places to go on vacation when i can when we're allowed to uh in canada 
Um, that's a rule that I've made for myself. And, and I'm, I've been looking at the Maritimes. I've been looking at going out to BC. Um, you know, so for, for me, I, I don't, th- I, obviously nationalism um, has something that we've seen definitely more pronounced uh, at this point. I mean, no matter where you are in the world. And I think that's going to be a trend that we're going to keep on seeing. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I think that we're going to be put into a position where we are not going to have a choice but to spend our money here in Canada. And we're going to have, we, we, it is going to become the norm to want a vacation in the rest of Canada just for the sake of helping the economy and not sending dollars outside of Canada. Yeah. And I think that's something that's going to be the new normal. And I'm fine with that, at least for the time being. Yeah. I was talking more like in terms of businesses, you know, like let's say you're a big manufacturer. Um, uh, you know, they're asking you, you know, the government now is suggesting to, to kind of retrofit manufacture so that we can produce things over here. At the end of the day, the owners that have these businesses, do you honestly think that they're going to continue doing that just because it's supporting local? Or at the end of the day, he's just going to think back to his profits and just have everything shipped from China or Asia or wherever, you know? Right. Uh, from that sense, I, I think that you're going to have to see a balance between it. But I think at the end of the day, people are going to want to count, uh, you know, what's how much money they have in their pockets mm-hmm. and whatever is going to be the most effective and cheapest, uh, uh, you know, option for them in that sense. So I think globalism from that perspective, maybe it's going to be a, a quasi-globalistic type of comeback. But at the same time, I, I think there, there's always a compromise that could be found. You know, one thing that we've definitely seen from this uh, situation is how delicate our supply chains are. I was speaking to my dad uh, earlier today and just having a conversation. He's, he's a butcher by trade. He uh, is now an, uh, an advisor uh, for uh, a major uh, meat uh, supplier um, in, in the Montreal region. And, and he advises them on, on what to do. And, and I was just talking with him, having a Still there? What's happening in the U.S. right now with, uh, you know, many of these types of COVID-19 cases happening in, in the manufacturing sector for, um, and also in the meat industry, we were having a conversation about the fact that so many of the, uh, the, the cattle, for example, are, are not being uh, processed and uh, they're growing outside of the size that they are required to uh, actually go to market. Um, so they cannot slaughter the cattle right now. They cannot sl- uh, slaughter um, the pigs uh, that go to, let's say, the Asian market and the Chinese market. You know, we uh, export an immense amount of pork to yeah. China. And at this point, um, the demand is is just not there. Uh, there is, we're in a, in a really tough position right now. Uh, we're going to have to really look, relook at how supply chains work. And one thing that has really become front of mind, I think for a lot of premiers is, and, and for the federal government too, is just in terms of retrofitting, uh, manufacturers that, you know, look at the 3M situation that we had just a few weeks ago where we weren't able to procure, um, or uh, we were able to procure a very limited supply of N95 masks. Uh, 3M had no, has no manufacturer manufacturing capacity here within Canada. Um, it's based largely in the U.S. And uh, because of that, the federal government and FEMA were able to restrict any of 3M's uh, exports to the Canadian market or the rest of the global market. Yeah. And I think that really put us in a compromising position. The premiers came came to the to the fight, and so did the federal government in terms of being able to procure masks in the end. But at the same time, it was a tough fight for us to do that, especially when you have at the same time just with N95 masks, um, you have a fight between uh, different states. And this is, this is something that I find wildly remarkable, where you've seen in Canada premiers 
working with each other, the Council of the Premiers, the, the federal government working in tandem with each other uh, to procure masks and to um, ensure that ventilators are uh, shared. Uh, Jason Kenney sent off uh, a, a massive uh, uh, supply of N95 masks to Ontario and Quebec, and I believe also some to British Columbia, and has also, I think, uh, he sent off some ventilators earlier this week as well. Um, you know, sort of saying, you know, Alberta is here to help our brothers and sisters yeah. across Canada. This is the message we want to send. Uh, when we've seen that as the, as the Canadian sort of response, what we've seen in the, U- in the U.S. are states bidding against each other okay. for N95 masks and for ventilators. And not only that, the states are then comp- having to compete against FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and then having to, to FEMA is then having to battle against the, the federal executive um, the, the, the federal government itself, the executive branch, having to battle against them. So even within the same government, you have agencies and branches fighting against each other for ventilators, for N95 masks. And then you have states that are saying, well, what the hell are we supposed to do? Yeah. We can't get a thing for our people. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny how certain states, like uh, I was listening to, uh, to, I can't remember who it was on the radio, and they were comparing California uh, to Canada, one of the, the best prepared states over there, right? I mean, they took charge, um, they took the lead, and they were well prepared, well prepared before anyone else. Even you know, even 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 though the president was you know until mid March was saying that it's no big deal, it's nothing, it's a you know it's gonna pass. These guys had already uh, um, supplied themselves with all sorts of medical equipment, masks, ventilators, and uh, ahead of the game. Same thing for Alberta here in Canada. They took up, uh, uh, they were very proactive. Uh, which that was, was back in January. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're, they're in a position now, like you said, to, to supply the rest of Canada. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, you know, uh, and this is, you know, we're talking about this before we started recording. In, in terms of leadership, we've seen certain things that, we never thought we'd see and we've seen things that have amazed us uh you know i mean in in canada though generally i I gotta say you know the premiers even the prime minister so far i mean they're you know the they're doing quite well uh you know with 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 the task at hand i you you gotta give it to them it was uh, you know justin judo came in a little bit late there but you know, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, it's, you know, it's Canada and it's not. The his wrong. approval points are up 21 points. That's for his approval rating. Yeah, Michael, in any any situation, if you look through throughout history, any crisis situation, yeah. your leader always goes up. Leader always goes up. And, and the one who has, of course, benefited the most off off of this has been François Legault. Yeah, I think he has the highest approval rating, and something at eighty nine percent in terms of being able to handle with with yeah. this situation here. Which, I mean, he already was. Um, you know, he already had the honeymoon. Uh, yeah. The honeymoon was extended, and now we're we're hit with this. You know, post election. So no, he's um, doing, it, doing a fantastic job. Even though I think this week I've, I'm I'm noticing that it's becoming a little bit more political. Uh, you know, he started attacking the unions. Uh, they got into a little bit of a scuffle with, uh, uh, with, uh, with the doctors. He's still looking out for help. People are now starting right. to question, like, where the hell are these people? What the hell are you doing? Why can't you just get these people to come? We need the help. Why is the army delayed? Why can't Justin Trudeau move? People are now, 
you know, I noticed in the very beginning, especially the journalists were very reluctant to ask the tough questions because they knew how sensitive the situation was. And also because it was very well managed from the very beginning. Now I feel that the journalists are kind of pressing a little bit. And so the, 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 sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I'm just going to say that the, the, you know, when you look at, you know, post COVID or at least post quarantine COVID, as we, we get out of this and go back into, to real life and, and, and real business, um, or, or some semblance of what life was before COVID-19. And you have to look at like, who are going to be the heroes in all of this? It's, it's not going to be the premiers. It's not going to be the prime minister. Those, those, they come and go. Uh, but, but I think the, the real leaders are, and, and, you know, people that are going to have the highest approval amongst the population are going to be the nurses, yeah, and and are going to be the doctors, and are going to be the front lines, um, the front line uh, uh, employees. Well, are going to realize how important these industries are that have been so undermined for you know, like so underestimated. I'm not talking about necessarily the health industry because that I think everyone right. always respected them and had them at very high esteem. But you know, look at f- the farming industry, the food distributors, the 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 truck drivers, the delivery drivers, like you said before, the cashiers at the supermarkets, yeah, um, cleaning and maintenance personnel, uh, all these all these industries that people weren't even you know mindful. <laughs> that even existed, right? For People, sure. They weren't even in anyone's radar. They're realizing now, um, you know, how important their contribution has been. And I think, and I agree with you, going forward, you know, I, 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 I like I look at our industry, for example, right? We took a little bit of a hit, but thankfully everything was fine. Going forward, I, I'm hopeful that, you know, when we're looking at bu- uh, business owners, building owners, or property managers, they're going to be much more careful in the way they select, for example, their cleaning company. You know, so yeah. they're not going to be, they're not going to question you necessarily on why does it cost this much? I, I think at this point, you know, going forward, they're going to be much more mindful of the service that you're offering. I think it's going to filter out the garbage that is out there, uh, the lack of quality. Uh, and I think in general, it's going to give a little boost to the companies that are in this industry. And I think that goes for all the other ones as well. But at the same time, like looking at how nurses and doctors have performed and how they are on the front lines and how we are so indebted to them for being at uh, the forefront of, of this crisis. Going forward, how am I as a premier going to at- publicly attack them during a future labor negotiation? Yeah. Yeah. How am I uh, as the, the minister uh, responsible for the treasury board going to have to uh, tell them no we're actually not going to give you this, uh, you know, 2% uh, salary increase that you're requesting on behalf of your workers. Mm-hmm. How does that become uh, palpable to the public? And, and how will they, how will the public react mm-hmm. uh, to, and, and this is why I think chief executives, premiers, and, and their cabinet are really going to have to rethink their sensitivity to these issues and how are they're going to be able to respond to these issues when it comes to future uh, labor negotiations from a lot of the groups right now that are saving our ass. Yeah, yeah, 100%. How do you see the leadership in this thing? I mean, obviously, Legault, uh, he has stood out, I think. Um, he, 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 uh, he, I remember in the beginning, he was pressing the federal government to take action on certain things yeah. that came days later, you know what I mean? And I think that's when people noticed uh, uh, the leadership uh, ability. In, in Francois Legon. Right. 
there's there's a few examples I can take from this. Just I mean, looking back to uh, to a few weeks ago, maybe even more than that. Uh, again, I'm I'm super losing track, and I know everybody's <laughs> losing track of time at this point. But um, you probably recall when we were starting to shut down uh, a lot of the air travel, or, or even before that, rather, when Valérie Plante had to send um, members of the public health yeah. uh, administration of Montreal to the airport to because because the there the was nobody from canceled yet. Yeah, yeah. They weren't canceled. There was nobody uh, checking from, uh, be it from CBSA or from uh, from Canada Public Health, uh, from Health Canada. There was nobody there to check for symptoms. There was or very little screen that was occurring, and there needed to be. There needed to be some. And and I think you know that was. Um, I don't think that was a um, a move done out of political opportunism. I think that Valérie and her administration there did it because it was the right thing to do. Oh, but they had um, to do it. I mean, something had to be done. Exactly. And that, that's a leadership you know, role that, that I, I, I look at somebody like that and I say to myself, this is somebody who understood the gravity of the situation. And they weren't taking advantage of it for politics. They were doing it for the public good. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And uh, you know, back in that time, uh, I was wondering, and I'm sure I wasn't the only one wondering, what the hell is taking so long? Yeah. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're always so dependent on the decisions made in the U.S. And they were extremely late in everything, right? So having that in mind, how can Justin Trudeau come out and say, yeah, you know, we're closing the border before it has even been considered by the American administration? You understand? Yeah. Uh, and the, 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 but the worst part, they spent two and a half years negotiating NAFTA. Yeah. Keeping keeping the border open, they spent two and a half years. Then they, they, the Trudeau government negotiated the closure of it in less than twenty four hours. Yeah. So I think you know one thing I would add. I think that you know it's it's a question of of uh, you know cross partisan collaboration. And I think you know the premiers have been working very closely with Ottawa on this. They understand that they're dealing with an administration that is that is super confrontational. Um, so it's, it's comforting to see this, but just on, on, on the NAFTA front, could you imagine two and a half years to keep the border open, to keep trade going, everything's happy, go lucky 24 hours it took to close the border. So, yeah, yeah. look, uh, you know, when push comes to shove, I mean, and, and when you're, when you're confronted with this type of situation, I mean, I think it's the only decision, uh, left to make. The question is how long can you keep this for? You know I mean? This is our biggest economic partner, right? You you can't keep this for for uh, for much longer than what it is already now. I mean I mean at the same time though, look at Montreal. Look where we are right now. We are the epicenter for uh, Canadian cases of COVID nineteen. Um, we need to be able to realize that and to to face the the facts of that um, and and to realize that of all of the Canadian jurisdictions, we are going to probably be the jurisdiction that will have the most uh, rigorous um, uh, types of social distancing measures uh, kept in place. Uh, going forward, while we are, you know, analyzing the slow reopening um, of the economy and of business and of schools, and and as we we we, we step by step, you know, we are going to still be behind where every other province is in Canada, just by the simple fact that we have we are the epicenter for what is going on right now, and and that's going to cause a lot of jealousy, I think. And that's going to cause to say that it's going to have a very negative impact when you're seeing everything rolling in Toronto, yeah. for example, or in any other big city. How much are people going to respect those uh, those directives? You know, but leadership goes both ways. You have the the bump in the polls right now that you're seeing for François Legault and how he's at 89 percent approval right now amongst Quebecers. Watch when 
things start reopening across Canada and Quebec is still left behind, not by the fact that, uh, you know, we, we're, we're doing something drastic to, to piss off the population and to annoy them and to bug them for the sake of doing it. You know, I, I, it's watch. I, I'm, I'm interested to see how the public here in Quebec will react to uh, Legault doing that, because I'll, I'll give you an example of somebody who's doing it for the sake of, uh, of you know, not I don't somebody who I really think is is doing it just to do something, um, which is not really effective. Is not somebody who is really bestowing a lot of leadership. Is is John Tory, Mayor John Tory? A lot of my friends in Toronto are saying that, you know, John Tory is a type of person who wakes up in the morning and is just looking for something to ban, and is looking for an essential service to to restrict, and is looking for a new method to create social distancing, um, in a way that he can find more people. And not because Torontonians aren't following the rules already put in place or the, the, the general standards that have been put in place uh, across Canada on the social distancing norms that are wildly, widely accepted by uh, across Canada. Um, but just for the, the sake of, of, of doing something and saying, hey, you know what? Hey, my name's John Tory. Don't forget about me. I'm the mayor of Toronto. I'm still here. Look, I'm being proactive. Uh, but he's, he's doing the wrong things. Yeah. And that is where you're seeing a lot of people in Toronto pissed off over what he's doing because the social distancing measures he's putting out there are not effective. Um, the the ticketing in, in parks of when you're alone walking your dog um, versus the lack of enforcement for a bunch of people walking down the street that I've heard of and you're 5, 10, 15 people in a crowd walking down the street late at night and there's no repercussions for that, that's a big problem right there. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about this whole uh, boost in authority that we've given to our police officers? I mean, at some point, we we understand that someone has to take over that control. But this whole, you know, police authority uh, is bugging me. The fact that they have, uh, they have been giving all these uh, extraordinary uh, rights to just do whatever the hell they want bothers me a little bit. It's dangerous. Um, it's it's dangerous. Uh, what scares me the most is how easily I've seen politicians of all sides been so accepting of the evaporation of their of, of civil liberties for Canadians um, in this in this time. And while I do think that some of the measures for law enforcement are appropriate and definitely will keep people safe and healthy and will ensure that we people will follow social distancing measures and whatnot. I do think that being so relaxed about the relinquishment of things that we consider so important for us and ingrained in Canadian society as, you know, privacy rights, civil, you know, basic civil liberties um, to be really disturbing and and to be very disturbing that, uh, you know, politicians are not willing to at, at at the minimum remark on how, these are extraordinary times. Yeah. Yes, extraordinary extraordinary measures are required, but to at least note that this is something that would not be um, is not necessarily something that they should be accepting so easily, which I find they are accepting very easily. Yeah, that that bothers me a lot too, and I'm also questioning, um, you know, going forward in the future, are we going to remove these? Uh, these extra measures easily? Are we going to say, okay, look, we're done. It's over. Everything's back to normal. Or are these guys going to be on a power trip to the point where it's like, no, this, this is what it is now. If I see something I don't like, <laughs> you know I, I mean? I've been giving these rights. 
Well, I mean, the you know, I made the comparison to 9-11 before in terms of, you know, this being 9-11 in slow motion. Um, you know, we saw a huge increase in the police state and in terms of, you know, cybersecurity measures that were taken to monitor Canadians and monitor, you know, how governments in Western, in Western uh, society, uh, you know, were, were able to monitor to a greater extent through the passing of legislation and um, the increase in budgeting towards the security states. Um, you know, that was what happened in 9-11. I would not be surprised if we saw the same thing happen, uh, you know, post, post-COVID-19. It's something that has become the norm now. What all, but, you know, the other thing that scares me is that so many, um, you know, putting the politicians aside because, you know, I love criticizing them, but just people in general are not willing to fight for this kind of things. They're not willing to fight in, in a crisis situation like this. This will be the type of, um, you know, this, this is the type of subject that will take the back seat. Um, and we'll probably remain in the backseat until, you know, probably another year, 18 months until we're done with this. And, and that's a very scary factor. People are just so willing to say, you know what, these are rights that I never really used before. They're not important for me. I don't care about my privacy. Um, you're seeing, uh, you know, in, in China, the, um, they're putting bracelets on people to be able to track them, monitor them. You're seeing uh, in other um, you know, Western countries now uh, applications on their phone being installed on the phone uh, to be able to show that they are um, they've been tested for COVID nineteen and that they're they're not a risk and that they're able to get inside of a, a grocery store or into a restaurant. Um, you know, these are things that once we reopen our economy, this is a very likely possibility. We could be in the position where we're going to have to you know t- take over this type of um, you know police state mentality where we are going to be. Uh, you know, this will this will depend whether or not I can walk into a grocery store or a restaurant or yeah. Starbucks. Yeah, that that is honestly something that is troubling me because, you know, the more the time passes, the more people accept it as normalcy, right? And right. I'm afraid that at the end, nothing's going to be done to counter it. That's what scares me. Uh, you're you probably know? right, and and I think a lot of people are going to be very accepting of it. But I mean, who's going to fight back? Canadian civil civil liberties lawyers, uh, you know, I'm sure a few people will take up the cause, but at the same time, you know, government rarely fights back when they get more power. Um, that's usually not how you know interest groups work. Yeah. Um, they're very happy to take on this type of, of new power and new administration. Yeah, exactly. Uh, tell me about the conservative uh, race. Obviously, everything was put on hold. You know, I wanted to send you a message because there was something that bothered me so much. Last time you were here, we were talking about the race. We were looking at. Uh, uh, you know, different uh, options, different possibilities of leaders right. coming up. <laughs> uh, and um, we mentioned Rudy. Remember Rudy? Our yes. friend Rudy. And, you know, none of, you know, neither myself or yourself thought that he was going to get anywhere far in the race. Uh, but, you know, the guy kept going. He, he was, you know, he was doing what he had to do. He was in the race. And this is what bothered me, man. And I want to take, and I want to see what you have to, uh, what, mm-hmm. what you have to say about it. I followed the guy. Obviously, I followed most of the candidates. He was the first one to come out and ask the Conservative Party to just stop the race. It made no sense. And he was right. The guy was absolutely 100% right. He felt uncomfortable asking for money from his supporters at a time where either they were losing their jobs, either they were looking for you know, uh, ways to, 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 to get income going forward. Their mm-hmm. kids are out of school. Like all these situations that people are going through and it made no, absolutely no sense for you to contact them uh, in order to get funds. I think he was absolutely right. The party ignored the guy. Obviously he didn't make the criteria for the next phase, 
And as soon as that next phase passed, they, they paused the race. So obviously the guy got eliminated. He put a, he put a post up on his Facebook page explaining what happened. I found that so disgusting, man. It, it's such a low blow. Like the day right after, the day right after the, right. The, 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 the next phase, he didn't qualify. Whoever qualified passed, and let's pause the race. It seemed as though it was done purposefully to eliminate whoever the, the, they didn't, you know, be, you know, in, you know right. quote unquote, so, didn't want. Yeah. And you have the big players, obviously, that, 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 that stayed on board. I, I just found that so unfortunate, even though, and I'm saying it publicly, I don't necessarily think that he would have gone you know, further. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But the guy was in the race. He was doing it, and he was doing it very passionately and good for him. I just found that to, to, to just to suck. You know what I mean? His instincts were right in terms of, and I think he really, like, you know, was able to up his, his, you know, political capital and was able to, to, you know, people, let me just say one thing about Rudy Hasney. Rudy is loved by everybody in the conservative party. Yeah. You meet this guy, you're just in love with him because he is so down to earth and so kind and so gentle and brilliant. Yeah. Um, you know, he was a director of stakeholder relations for Andrew Scheer uh, during his time in opposition. Uh, you know, he worked for, for minister at fast, uh, I believe at international trade. He's somebody who is super, super respected by all uh, portions, all groups uh, within the big blue, big blue tent of the conservative party. So, you know, that's, that's the way he is. Um, I remember he, he, Rudy went to the, um, the, I think the, the Nova, the progressive conservative party of Nova Scotia, uh, hosted a all conservative federal conservative candidates a leadership candidate get together mm-hmm. um, in Halifax and uh, Rudy went there and I think Rudy got more applause and more cheers than Peter McKay that's yeah. Peter's home province right. and it's just because people were in love with Rudy and they, they, his personality he, it's infectious look the um, guy like a champ I'm not saying anything he, he yeah. took like a champ but he it did. sucks man it just sucks why right cut this guy out you know what i mean it's not fair not because we know him and we want him to go forward but just because what he was saying made absolutely 100 percent sense you know what he I mean? did, and he was ahead of everybody else in terms of being able to say that and, and that takes courage and, and that is leadership right there and i think he would have brought um you know it's really unfortunate because we have no now no quebecer um and and no francophone uh within the leadership race uh now which i think is truly unfortunate and i, I do think he's a serious contender and i told him that from the beginning i, I wasn't supporting I, I was supporting him you know as a friend but i wasn't supporting him per se um against any other candidate because i'm not supporting anybody at this point yeah uh but uh you know and and i and i don't think i will be supporting anybody going into the conservative leadership race because i think people are just so sick and tired of of uh, such a terrible campaign it is probably the worst political campaign um, apart from maybe Jeremy Corbyn winning the labor uh, leadership uh, back a few years ago, this is, it's boring. It's, it's worse than the Ontario oh, liber- liberal uh, yeah, campaign they had uh, a few months ago with uh, Del Duca winning. Yeah, that was horrible. But at the same time, I mean, look, they, they have to confront this whole situation, right? So it, it, it puts a dent in, you know, the enthusiasm, quote-unquote enthusiasm, whatever enthusiasm there was, uh, it, it just it does suck. I mean, look at the liberal uh, race here in Quebec. Same thing. I mean, not that it was exciting before, but now it's like, well, people Can have I just say, for, for Alexandre Cusson, I, this is somebody who I do not know, 
Yeah. Um, but I have, uh, I appreciate the fact that he got into the race just because I, I think that in the last thing, you know, be somebody pro Dominic or anti Dominic, whatever. I just think that it, the worst possible thing is having a coronation. Yeah, for sure. In, in, inside of a, a leadership race, um, you know, be it federal or provincial, I think it's the worst thing that you can have. And, and it goes across all parties, of course. But, you know, seeing this gentleman resign his seat as mayor of Drummondville and his presidency uh, as uh, head of the UMQ, uh, you know, he took all of these risks and now he finds himself in limbo, in purgatory within yeah. politics. And I, and I find that so unfortunate, but yeah. he was on know, the podcast. He was on the podcast actually. And we spoke about these things uh, kind of, you know, uh, off air. Uh, I was actually supposed to have Dominic also, but this thing happened, uh, you know, we're going to postpone that. We're going to push that for later. You know, it's unfortunate because I think that even here in Quebec, it's it, it, there's no enthusiasm, there's no excitement. Yeah, but nobody wants to hear about this. Like nobody wants to. Nobody wants to get emails from Peter McKay three times a day. Nobody wants to get emails from Aaron O'Toole about um, fill in. You know, East, Easter messages. I don't want to get Easter messages from Aaron O'Toole. I don't. I don't. I don't want uh, you know Derek Sloan. This this anti gay. Uh, MP uh, yeah. from from Southern rich. Ontario. He still can you imagine they they cut off Rudy, but they let this guy in. Come on, man! Like this this is really bad. Like this is this is this is really bad. Who's and in the race now? How many uh, how many how many people are in the race? There is there are four candidates, um, and of course I'm going to mess up the name of the only female in the candidate. But um, oh, uh, uh, Leslie, Leslie, I believe her name is Leslie Lewis, but I could be wrong. But she's uh, uh, African Canadian. She's uh, you know a wolf woman uh, running in the leadership right now. There is Derek Sloan, who is uh, the MP, the MP rather for uh, I think Addington Lennox. Mm-hmm. If I'm correct, but you know, all of this is is put into a very weird sort of uh, you know position. I was speaking about this with a with a former cabinet minister uh, last week, and all of this gets gets put into a really weird sort of bubble of purgatory right now because theoretically, the leadership committee of the Conservative Party could reopen the nomination period, and theoretically, they could allow for more candidates to attempt to qualify. This is not out of the ordinary whatsoever. Because like they're, they're, they're the four candidates right now, I was right, Leslie Lewis, um, you know, they're verified candidates right now, Peter McKay, Aaron O'Toole, Leslie Lewis, and Derek Sloan. These are the four verified candidates, but nothing stops the LEOC committee, the leadership um, committee within the Conservative Party, of reopening. And, and to be very frank with you, I hope they do. I but hope they do. Would it be fair to do so? You know, given the circumstances of having suspended it because of a global pandemic, I think so. But even putting that aside, just because the leadership race is so bad, because every single week there is uh, some sort of stupid tweet that Peter McKay's team puts out that everybody is laughing at yeah, yeah. Um, because this this campaign, his campaign, um, and I'm not saying this about everybody on the campaign. I've got some really good friends, people that I respect, Benoit Larocque, um, you know, uh, Alex Nuttall, uh, Carl Delandes, all really respectable, amazing people that have really given their, 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 their dedicated their lives to, to uh, public service and to the party and to the membership. Yeah. But at the same time, there are people within that campaign that if, if Peter was really smart, 
he would go to Aaron O'Toole. He would say, Aaron, I've raised a few hundred thousand dollars. Um, I would like you to take, um, you know, my director of digital strategy, Emrys Grave. And I'd like to take him and I'd like to give him over to, because, you know, we really don't have a place for him anymore. Um, but, you know, he's a great guy. He's a, we really appreciate him. I'm going to give you a hundred thousand, hundred and fifty thousand dollars for you to contract him for the rest of the campaign to, and, and Peter would win the race because he wouldn't have Emrys Grafe on his team anymore. And that is the problem. You have certain individuals in there that are Emrys, he, 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 I just, I can't, I can't, but there are certain people within every campaign and, and Emrys knows this, um, that destroy. Uh, a political candidate's future. And that is what we are seeing right now with the self-destruction of the Peter McKay campaign. The only thing that saved Peter McKay at this point, the only thing that saved him was COVID-19 <laughs> because it suspended the campaign. It suspended all of the crazy bullshit that he was putting out through Twitter, through Facebook, any of, any of his moronic policy statements that said nothing to Canadians, that appealed to no conservative whatsoever, that no average Canadian wanted to hear about COVID-19 saved Peter McKay for now. But, you know, reopening the, candidates, uh, the, the, the candidatures, you know, it wouldn't be fair to the people that are there now, right? That they did whatever they had to do. They passed the stages and they, they reached whatever point they reached. You know, reopening it and say, oh, well, look, uh, you know, we're going to reopen it for another month or two whenever this whole situation is done with. If I were any of these candidates, I would definitely object. I'd be like, look, dude. Sure. What's going on here? You know, we, we worked hard. We got to where we got. And why would the party do that, right? Um, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I just don't. I, I just think that they should come back to whatever it was before they suspended it, right? Like before, I don't know, fe- mid-February or early March or whatever. You, you know, go back to that and say, look, we're going to go back to whoever it was that. Who, who, who was cut out anyway? Was Rudy the only one that was cut out? There was a bunch of irrelevant people that were running. Um, there was <laughs> now everybody I list is going to be presumed to be irrelevant, but that's not the case. Uh, Marilyn Gladu, who's an MP for yeah. Sarnia, I believe, yeah. uh, she was running. There was a bunch of other people that were attempting to get on former candidates who had never held public office, who had never held held a seat in parliament. So yeah. there, there were people like that. You know, I'd love to see. Um, you know, there were there was speculation that John Baird might run. I mean, that is, you know, somebody of substantial cabinet experience. But at the same time, when you look at the the conservative bubble, the conservative tent, John Baird is your red meat uh, Tory. He's a not red, but he's definitely like your, um, you know, your blue Tory. You know, like super conservative, concrete conservative. But at the same time, is uh, somebody who supports the LGBTQ community. Somebody who is not going to take an aggressive position when it comes to a woman's right to choose. Um, uh, you know, we're somebody who he he's he's somebody who would be able to bring, I think, all parts of the conservative party together and would be more of a Stephen Harper candidate than. Um, you know, the progressive red Tory candidates that we're seeing like Peter McKay. Um, What's the controversy with him? He was part of the, the committee that evaluated the, 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 the loss of the conservative party. No, yeah. no, he, so he John, drafted yeah. the report. He, yeah. would, uh, he would have a huge ad, uh, advantage. Has anyone even seen that report? Has, is it out? Is it public? No, it's, you know, cause the whole premise of the, so the, the report was, was commissioned by the leader. Yeah. Um, and they com- Andrew commissioned John to to go through with this report, and it was the, the the report was always 
only supposed to go to to Andrew, and that was going to be that. It was going to be for Andrew's eyes only, and I think parts of it have leaked since then, and uh, which I mean, it tends to happen, and, and that's natural within within uh, within politics. But um, a lot of people were saying it was unfair that you know John he got to meet with uh, you know all of the a good good segment of the political campaign, a good segment of the candidates, um, a good segment of the of the of the central headquarters in Ottawa. And and had you know they were they were accusing John of having all of this intellectual property that he was able to you know have such a great understanding of of what went wrong and my response to that is I think John had a better idea of what went wrong than just about everybody else including the inner workings of the campaign yeah. um, I think sometimes the best people who are able to evaluate a campaign are people that were on the outside John yeah. was not within the the war room per se he yeah. was not you know uh, didn't have an instrumental role within the campaign itself during the campaign. Um, you know, he was obviously supporting Andrew and would counsel Andrew when he needed to. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, John was not um, John was 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 an outsider, and that's why he was brought in to to evaluate it from a, a you know a, an unbiased perspective. You don't think that would put him in uh, in um, in a position where he would have an advantage? I don't think that he would necessarily want to have the people that were running Andrew Shearer's campaign on in his campaign. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't think I would want either, but I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, Jean, his whole, he was evaluating whether or not he was going to run after Pierre Padiev, uh dropped out. Yes. And, and there was an absence of a, of a true blue conservative, a true blue Tory running. And, uh, John was initially going to, um, chair, uh, Pierre's campaign for uh, the leadership. I, yes. Yeah. So, and then when Pierre, you know, made a, a sudden decision. Um, that was a surprise. That that surprise. It was, but it, there was no. I, I, everybody seems these days to have to jump to some sort of scandal, um, you know, laden, uh, you know, reason for a, a politician's uh, abrupt departure from politics or from making a key decision or going forward with a key decision. But it was truly because of his family, and I know, I know his wife. I believe I, it. I, I believe yeah. it. It's just that I didn't. But see there was a lot of people who didn't. Yeah. No. Well, that's that's that sucks, honestly. Hmm. Uh, so 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 what's happening now? So everything is obviously um, uh, in, you know, everything's halted. Everything's on pause, basically. Right. Um, are they postponing? When was it? When was it for? When was it? When was the the date? Was there a date established? For yeah, it, it was going to be June twenty seventh. So yeah. th- that's when they were going to you know process and and count the ballots um, for June twenty seventh. So. Right now, where they've they've just what they've decided to do, Leoc, the the committee, the leadership committee, is going to uh, come back on May first to do a, a, a broader reevaluation of of the dates. So, in, until May first, um, there's going to be a suspension of leadership fundraising. The party is not going to be processing any donations. The uh, verified candidates thus far, so the four candidates are are going to be um, encouraged to refrain from you know, contacting members or doing anything the leadership race, um, you know, within that, within the leadership race itself. And so, and obviously the convention that was supposed to happen in late June is canceled. So um, the, the cutoff for memberships is going to be May 15th. That's the other news. So we're, we're still waiting. I mean, it's, it's going to come soon in terms of what, what will happen next, but uh, Leoc will be meeting soon about that. Wow. But like you said, I mean, the, the, it, it really just, turned everyone off <laughs> honestly uh, i agree with you man i don't want to hear anything about campaigning i don't want to hear anything no. about leadership this whole thing just put a sour but but who was the candidate who was the one candidate within the conservative leadership race who was was pushing day in and day out 
before Leoc and the Conservative Party made the decision to suspend the race? Who was the candidate who was sending out tweets and pushing and saying, this is democracy, we, we can't, you know, there could be an election at any second, which is completely ludicrous. Yeah, for sure. Um, Peter McKay. Peter McKay, the, the, the co-founder of the modern Conservative Party, lacked the political depth to evaluate the situation in a serious manner. And it looked really selfish because at the end of the day, Peter's probably going to win. If, if, if it remains the race that it is right now, it's going to be the four candidates. But I, I, as much as I like Peter as a person, um, and, I, and I think that he'll, he'll make a, a good leader, and I, I, I hope that he'll make it just It all depends on the people he surrounds himself with. Mm-hmm. I hope that he makes a great prime minister. But at the end of the day, man, what, were, what was your team thinking? When they were pushing so hard against this, when everybody from from your members to your to 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 just the general population, people that are not even involved, don't even care about politics, were saying, yeah. "I'm hearing about the Conservative Party and Peter McKay for the first time because they don't want to stop the race, they don't want to suspend the race." What type of sour impression does that leave yeah. in, a, in a in a Canadian's mouth? Yeah, incredible. It is. It is. Look, I can't say much more uh, of the provincial race here in, uh, in Quebec. I mean, look, I don't know. You know, two candidates, man. You know, for the, and we spoke about this. I think it was a mistake to do it this early. I think they should have waited yeah. uh, more, you know, closer to the election date. But, you know, we'll, uh, we'll live with that and we'll see what happens. And uh, it, it's just that nobody really cares, man, at this point. And no. even when it picks up again, I mean, how is it going to pick up? Uh, you know, how are you just going to forget about everything that just happened and convert your mind to campaigning, right? I mean, it, it's just weird. That's all it is, you know? It is. And I, I think the, the bit of politics that I've seen thus far, like in during like COVID-19 has been from Jason Kenney. And as much as I, I like Jason Kenney, and I think he's a fantastic premier and an amazing conservative, you, you, when you look at the public polling that you've seen across the provinces, he's the politician, while all the premiers and the prime minister have received a bump, he's received the least um, amount of, of, a, of a bump in, in, in public polling and, and, and um, in actual um, approval ratings. And, and, you know, there are many factors, I'm sure, as to why that is, uh, you know, the, the devaluation of oil prices, the, um, you know, the, the, the current uh, rate of unemployment inside of, of Alberta. You know, Alberta, while we're talking recession in the rest of Canada, Alberta is talking depression numbers. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is this is the, the fact of the matter. And that's it was what that even before COVID. Imagine yeah. they're facing 25% unemployment in Alberta. That that's that's the the fact of the matter, and that's the reality that they're going to be facing right now. But you know, Premier Kenny has has a knack for being partisan, and that's fine. But the consequences that come with that are, you know, you could leave a negative impression in, in your constituents' minds mm-hmm. um, when it comes to, uh, you know, we, they expect a responsible uh, head of government to be there and to lead. They don't ex- expect somebody to be taking pot shots at the leader of the opposition. So this is, the, you know, in, in looking at, like, for example, he's one of the only, I think the only premier, I, I could be wrong, but the only premier to be taking shots at, um, at uh, Theresa Tam, who's the head of the Public Health Agency of Canada. We see her every day uh, on, on um, almost every day on, on the briefings at, uh, in the afternoon with the deputy prime minister. And, you know, you know he has, you know, compared um, her 
style of, of you know, her decision-making or her lack of decision-making to that of the WHO. And, and she's, she works as an, she has a role as an advisor to the World Health Organization, and they've also received an immense amount of criticism. So yeah. I think that, you know, there, there's, should politics be taking center stage right now? You can't, you can't. Maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know. It's tough to say that the, that it should because people are going to see right through it, right? I mean, look, this is the perfect example. Like I told you here in Quebec, I mean, everything was going so perfectly. I mean, everybody was. I think people are still tuning in every day to to listen to to, to Premier Legault. But I, I just feel like in the last couple of days, you know, it's it's turning political, and I just hope that they're going to stop, right? I just I I just hope that they're going to go back to the previous strategy, which is just to come out, reassure people give the numbers, uh, you know, what's next, what are we doing, and, and avoid just attacking unions, attacking doctors. Uh, you know, it's getting political. You have certain members of the liberal, uh, of the opposition that have volunteered and they're working in long-term care facilities and they're coming out with their impression, rightfully so, because there's obviously mm-hmm. things that, that are missing and they're on the attack as well. And I just fear that it's just going to switch into this political battleground uh, and nothing like it's going to be counterproductive. Like there's no point. It's it's too bad that Enrico Ciccone can't body check the COVID-19 virus in the hallway because that would just be fantastic. But, you know, but like I follow him, I follow Marie Montpetit uh, and, uh, you know, Monsef Deragi that also went in, uh, obviously Barrette. And they came out with like the worst things possible. And look, they're just giving their impression of what they saw. And the reality is that Premier Legault is disconnected with what's happening on the ground. And this is the message that has come out this week, right? So, and it's turning political. I can see it coming and I hope that we avoid it, but I just think it's the wrong approach. You, you, you gotta, you have to avoid it. Whether, whether you're in opposition or whether you're in government, you just have to avoid it. And you know, you know, these guys, I can understand where they're coming from. They saw things that probably shocked them, uh, you know, uh, frustrated them. And, you know, they're just reporting what they saw, right? Uh, yeah, but I, I think but I think the messenger is really important, right? Because, I mean, of course, anything that they come back and say in a negative context is going to be looked upon negatively by the CAC. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, you know, the... I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like... Th- well, what I hope actually uh, is that they're going to take into consideration what is going on because they actually have parliamentarians now on the ground reporting and giving feedback on what is actually happening and what is actually needing uh, needed. So I, I just hope we avoid, you know, going into the, you know, the political thing That's well, because, it's, it, uh, you know, I don't know. There's a there's a an MPP in um, in Ontario, Queens Park, uh, Natalie Kusundova, and she is a nurse, a registered nurse by training, and uh, was a nurse up until she was elected in 2018 when Ford got into Queens Park. She's a progressive conservative in, in the Toronto area, and uh, she represents Mississauga, I believe. And she about two weeks ago made the decision when they were making uh, callouts for nurses. Uh, retired nurses, nurses that were suspended to come back into the, um, the workforce, she, she decided to. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, you know, I'm sure she has seen the same problems that Quebec has mm-hmm. been dealing. Of course, every province, every jurisdiction has their own issues, but at the same time, um, she's not going to speak out negatively against the PC not. government. She's it's not going to speak against the government. Of course, but I do, I would presume 
the types of conversations that she's having with, with the premier or with the premier's office or with the ministry of health um, that are of a political nature and are negative and are, is constructive feedback that they mm-hmm. can use to bonify the services that need to be, need to be reported on. I think that it would go a lot further if the, 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 uh, Marie Montpetit's or the Eric Chacon, or the Enrico Chaconis or the, uh, Gaetan Barretts, uh, were, were giving this constructive feedback instead of going to the media or making a, a Facebook statement or, or making a video on Twitter. Yeah, I going out there and saying, "Oh my God, look at this terrible, terrible mess that François Legault is administering as premier," and and look at how there's there's a there's a there's a, a lack of action and a lack of of political will to do something about this. Instead of going that route immediately, which which is still a viable option, you you can instead first and foremost go to the premier himself yeah. because i've always seen francois legault as being the type of person as being open to hearing this type of stuff if it's not done in a public forum if you go to him privately his staff are like that i've, I've dealt with his staff on many projects yeah. they're 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 human beings like you and me but and, especially, but especially with this uh circumstance i know that they've had a very collaborative uh uh environment you know with all the leaders of the opposition i mean so far it's been constructive you know and he's come out and thanked the leaders of the opposition uh it's just this week that i'm noticing that it's it's taking a turn (laughs) and i hope they avoid it because i i just don't see how anything good can come out of any of this right but I mean, it's again, it's it's playing politics in a in a in a time where you shouldn't be playing politics, and it goes for both sides. It goes with with, with Legault speaking to the unions the way that he's speaking to them, which I think is a, is a huge mistake because yeah, I think if, if if you know nurses are going to be uh, protected by the public, uh, they are looked upon by the public in the highest regard right now, and that was even before. Uh, COVID-19, but it's going to be even more so afterwards. And I think it goes the same way in terms, and I know you'll disagree with me, but even when it comes to, to um, you know, members of the opposition criticizing publicly, um, I think that's that's bad for their image too. And, and it you know, the polls show it right now. I know that polling is, you know, take it with a grain of salt given the circumstances we're in. But I mean, the liberals weren't doing that great, you know, before COVID-19 came along to begin with. And I don't think they're going to be doing all that much better uh, after COVID-19. So. And, no, I agree with you. Um, Going forward, um, you know, how do we prepare? How do we prepare for uh, post-COVID? Uh, what do the governments have to deal with? Uh, what kind of repercussions do you think uh, we're going to see? Uh, impacts, you know, socially, at a community level, politically, economically, uh, even internationally. I mean, uh, you mentioned before the dispute with 3M. I mean, obviously, there's international agreements that have been affected by this, right? Uh, how, do we, uh, how do we prepare for what's uh, for what's coming i think first and foremost you prepare by getting ready for a second wave and by the possibility of of that happening sooner than we think pence came out today and said that the u.s is prepared for a second wave that they're working on uh, you know emergency measures for that but at the same time if you're this is where we're, we're caught into a we're in a bit of a debacle you can't be prepared for a second wave or say that you're prepared for a second wave when you are looking at reopening the economy yeah. with, imminently. Yeah. And, and I, I just, I don't see how that goes within, uh, you know, public health standards that are acceptable. I don't think they're acceptable. Um, I, you know, that's, I, I think the same thing is being said by, be it uh, Dr. Aruda, be it Dr. Tam. I think most people understand that, you know what, a second wave is probably going to happen. Um, and when you're saying that this could go all the way forward to 2021, I, I think that the, the best thing that people should be doing 
you know, maybe yes, reopening the economy is, for, you know, is, is a major part of it. But I think first and foremost, you think about ensuring that, you know, you're able to keep the curve flat in the way it is. That's at least what, what comes into, to, you know, my sort of thinking right now. I think on the economic side of things, in terms of labor force, um, you know, the first thing that Trudeau did right was solidifying the banking system um, and allowing banks to loan a lot more money. He was able to pump money into the, into businesses um, that, you know, Again, loans, um, a very small percentage, percentage of it will be forgiven. But I think that was, you know, that is, is the first layer that you need um, on, on, on the, in terms of reopening the economy. You know, step two was, was the SIR program. And what I think is a very likely possibility is in many of the instances where we've seen in the Western world programs like SERB, the um, Canadian Emergency uh, Benefit, um, where you seed programs like this, which almost act as like universal a universal income source, um, you've seen them kept. You see them kept after they have been put into place because it becomes natural um, to keep it there. So I think that such a benefit will probably be kept in place just because businesses are not going to the economy is not going to open like this, and businesses are not going to come back like this clientele will have to be rebuilt over a period of time. And this could take several years. It was the same thing in 2008. Uh, you know, the economy did not just come back in 09, uh, 10, 11. It took until about 2014, 2015 for the economy to actually rebound and actually have, uh, you know, growth beyond what was lost. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's going to be a really important thing to see right there. So um, governments are going to have to reevaluate how, um, you know, the the levels of poverty and and low income in 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 Canada right now and how programs were working before and how they're going to have to work afterwards and I think that's where a, like a universal basic income will come into play I don't necessarily think it's a good thing I'm just saying that's how I predict the government's response to uh, you know ensuring that people are going to be able to spend some money if they have money the only way they're going to have money is through this program and I think that's the only way that they can come back at this point but it's going to be a slow um, I think it's going to be a, um, a step-by-step process. That's going to be a trial and error. There's going to be certain things that happen which are going to have to be brought back. You're going to see cases of, of COVID-19 or outbreaks of COVID-19 happen in areas where businesses or certain industries reopen too early. It was a mistake, and they're going to close again. And the government's going to get a nice tap on the hand like that from the public, from public health administrators who are saying, we told you so, it was too early, we told you not to do it, but you did it anyway. And yeah. now you got to face the consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I took up a lot of your time, man. Uh, no, you didn't. You never take up my time. I love this. I love being able to chat with you, man. Uh, definitely fun. We're going to go for the fourth. Uh... <laughs> hey. Uh, I appreciate your time, buddy. Uh, always a pleasure. Uh, I'm not going to keep you much longer. Uh, dude, stay safe. <laughs> Likewise. Stay confined. Um you know, if you want to do the a COVID drink with me anytime soon, I yeah. I'm, I, I, I do I swear this is this is tea. Okay. Um, at this point, but I I, I have a, and, I have a feeling I swear, that if, and I swear this is water, so it's nothing. Yeah, for sure. But <laughs> uh, but you know, if we do a fourth in a couple of weeks, I'm pretty sure that this will be full of vodka. Yeah. But uh, that's between you and me <laughs> and everybody who's listening right now. So, right. dude, thanks a lot, man. Uh, take care of yourself, and uh, let's hope uh, everything. Uh, Everything uh, just, you know. Everything is going to be all right. You're right. You know? uh, everyone is worried. Everyone is uh, thinking of other people. And uh, we're all in this together, I think. And uh, eventually things are going to be okay. And uh, 
let's uh, let's be hopeful, man. Smoke some weed; it helps. I don't, but if you want, you can do that. <laughs> I do it so you don't have to. It's fine. All right, buddy. Have a good night. Take care. Take it easy. Ciao, ciao.